I miss Tony. I miss having Tony preach. It's been like a very long time. <laughs> but we've recently finished our Pastors Chronicles series, and um, we had many guest pastors come in and preach. We had Paul preach about our last week. I preached two weeks ago. And um, we'll be moving into our new series, which is going to be going back to the rhythms. And so we'll be moving to our new series, and it'll be titled Christ's Rhythm with Work. And so for the next couple of weeks, what we want to explore is what does it look like to live as a Christian in our workplaces? Uh, because if we're honest, oftentimes we tend to have this spiritual gap between our Sundays and our Mondays, right? Sunday morning, we come in, we're singing praises, um, the gospel is clear and obvious from our lives and our language and our works, but once we go to work on Monday morning or whenever, um, Christ seems to like fall back to the um, back of our heads, and um, he's kind of removed from our focus. And so what we want to kind of focus on for the next couple weeks is what does it look like to bridge that gap between Sundays and Mondays? When we come um, to our workplaces, what does it look like to share Christ through our words, our thoughts, our actions? Um, a statement that I emphasized about like two weeks ago when I preached was that the lives of the church ought to say a lot about the king that it worships, right? The lives of his church ought to say a lot about the king that it worships. And so that doesn't change whether we're gathered or scattered, right? That doesn't change whether we're gathered on Sunday mornings or when we're scattered on Monday mornings. And so, again, right, our next goal is to recapture this idea to clap on beat with Christ and to see our work not as separate from Christ, but as a worship to our king. With that in mind, um, the very first sermon, I have the honor of giving the first sermon introducing the series, we'll be looking at Christ as a worker or the story of work. And today's sermon comes to us from Genesis. Uh, we'll be looking at two different passages. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and then Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So if you have your Bibles with me, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. If you guys have never opened up a Bible, you're in luck. It's literally the first page. First two verses. Okay, we'll be reading verses 1 and 2. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. We'll start with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Moving on to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. But the seventh day, God has finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that had to be done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Okay, let's close our eyes, bow our heads. Father, as we listen to your word, I pray, Lord, that it may seep within our hearts that it may not be something that we hear in one ear and out the other, but that it may steep, it may grow in our hearts, it may convict us, 
I pray, Lord, that you may help us see rightly as God that we're gathered here together because there was a God who's willing to come down as man to die for our sins, because we have a Father who dearly, dearly loves us, because we have a God who looked at us and loved us so much that he called us his people. I pray, Lord, that these truths may be the lens in which we read your word and we see you, that you may mold our hearts, mold our minds, so that when we scatter tomorrow, we go to our workplaces, we can loudly proclaim, Lord, through our work that you are God, that there is a God who is willing to do this for us. So I pray, Lord, that this word may not return void, but it may convict us, it may latch into our hearts, and that we may treasure it. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so today is Sunday, and tomorrow will be, great job, guys. Tomorrow will be Monday. And some of you guys may be going back to school. Others may be going to your respective workplaces. Um, But all of you guys will be working in some way, right, some form or fashion. And I know sometimes we think that college is just a way for us to prepare for work, Work is some way that we get money, and retirement is when we're done from work. But in the scriptures, it has a very different definition of work. Whether you're in school, whether you're in an internship, whether you're unemployed, whether you're retired, you're all called to work in some way, right? Working is more than just getting paid. Working is an act of worship. And so as you guys go to your workplaces, whether you guys are doing um, work, whether you guys are preparing for school or whatever, uh, the question I want you guys to reflect on is, why do you work? What is the significance to your work? Think of you, like your workplace right now, whether it's uh, being a server, whether it's teaching piano, whether it's coding, what's the purpose behind your work? What's the significance behind your work? Because the significance of our work largely depends on what story you attach your work to, right? If the story of your work is all about achievement, then the work you do is going to be about making a name for yourself. You want to get into a good college. You want to go in and get that prestige. You want to go for the highest, right? Um, You want to go from obscurity to glory. But if the story of your work is about security and wealth, then your work is a means to comfort. Everything that you do in work is all about accumulation, right? You want to go from poverty to privilege. Everything is going to be about massing the most amount of things, right? Filling up your storehouses, doing the most to get the most. But if the story of your work is about making the world a better place, then work becomes a means of salvation. You want to go from dystopia to utopia, You want to work because you think that you can make the world a better place. Your work is always telling a story. The big question is, what story is your work telling? Who's at the center of your work? Do you work just because you need to survive, because you need to make ends meet, or is your work pointing to something else, to yourself, to your coworkers? What story is your work telling to the powers and principalities and everyone witnessing your work? And arguably, even more important than that, is the story that your work telling even true? Um, Or is it just half true at best? So these are the questions that I want to kind of explore today 
and kind of touch on in the next couple weeks. And today we'll start this series with exploring what the Bible says is the true story of work. And the true story of work doesn't begin with you, but it begins with God. Because in Genesis, God tells us this true story of work, and it starts from verse 1. And so today's sermon in a sentence, right? If you guys have ever heard me preach before, um, my sermon in a sentence is just your way of knowing where the sermon is headed. If you guys ever walk out, you guys are trying to remember what I preached on today, you should remember this sentence. The sermon in a sentence is, join God's story in the work of human flourishing for the glory of God. Let me say that again. Join God's story in the work of human flourishing for the glory of God. And we have two points for us today. Point number one, our work is God's story. And the point number two, our work is human flourishing for the glory of God. Right? Our work is human flourishing for the glory of God. So start with point number one, our work is God's story. I'm going to reread the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So these first 10 words in verse 1, or 7 in Hebrew, introduce more than just the first book of the Bible, right? These 10 words are introducing literally the beginning of all of reality, of all, the entire universe. And so if we want to try to understand the meaning of work, if we want to try to understand this world, then it just makes sense that we want to see and listen to the one who created this world, the one who created work, Right? And so these 10 words in English lay the first brick for how we ought to understand the purpose behind work and the first worker, God. And notice that in these two verses, we don't see a struggle between God and goddesses. We just see a single God. We don't see a God in need of someone or something, right? God isn't creating and working because he's lacking or because he's lonely or because he has nothing else to do. Um, but he creates because it is good. And think of how different that is from all the other surrounding creation myths. Um, like Greek mythology, for example. Work is considered more of a curse, right? When Pandora, the very first woman, finds the jar, opens it, and unleashes all of the world's evils, one of the evils that comes out is work. And so for many creation myths, work is considered a negative thing. It's a curse. It's something that we have to do. It's compulsory. But here, God is saying it is good. In fact, God is the one who's initiating the very first work. Working is a blessing. And he creates the heavens and the earth. I know it's tempting for us to think that work was created after the fall, right? After Adam and Eve rebelled against God. But in reality, the story of work begins long before the fall in the garden in verse 1. And so, right, in verse 1, God is creating everything that's invisible and visible, bringing it to light. And in verse 2, we see that the work of creation was not done in an instant, but instead the work of creation was done over a period of six days, right? It's something that's progressive. It's adding on to each other. Uh, Rereading verse two one more time. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God, or darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So if we look at that verse, we see something incredible. Right? We see that the earth was formless and empty. But what does that mean? 
In verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. But in verse 2, we see that the earth is formless and empty. And whenever I read this, I always thought like it meant the earth was um, this watery abyss with chaos and ooh and just things just roaming around. But actually, the word that's used here in Hebrew is tohu vohu, which it, it translates something more to like barren and unhabitable. Right? The only other time the phrase tohu vavohu is used is in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. Um, Jeremiah, the prophet, was trying to rebuke Judah, the entire nation, for being disobedient, for um, falling into idolatry. And so it reads, I looked at the earth, and it was tohu vavohu, formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. So it's almost like a reversal of God's created order, right? So Jeremiah was trying to communicate, if you continue in your sin, then it's almost going to be like a reversal of God's work. And so in Genesis, when it says the words tohu vavohu, I think it's trying to communicate that in verse 2, the earth is without shape. Like it's without form and void, it's barren, it's desolate, and it's not yet ready. It's not the final product. There's still work to be done. And then the Trinity begins to create, right? The Father creates, the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters, and the Word, right? God creates by the means of the Word, Jesus Christ. Um, We see this again in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. If we're looking at the first three verses of chapter 1, I'll go and read that out loud for us. It reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so there's this parallel between John chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 1. It's almost as if the writer of John is trying to say to his readers, think back to Genesis, right? Jesus is there during the creation progress, right? Jesus is there. That's why whenever we end service, we're reading the Christology, we always say Jesus created all things and sustains all things because in verse 2, we see that the Father is there, the Holy Spirit is there, and Jesus, the Word, is there, and they're orchestrating this grand work of creation. And so in the first two chapters of Genesis, we're told seven times God creates, 12 times that he made something, the heavens, the stars, animals, plants, but the crowning moment of all of God's creative work is not far off galaxies or mountains, but man. Right? Even the language that's used in these two chapters points to man being the crowning achievement of creation. Right? In day six, when God creates man, he uses a total of 150-ish words. The very closest that comes to that is in a different day where it gets to like the number 60. So it's not even close. So there seems to be an intentionality that was brought about to creating man. God sets apart man, blesses him, and creates him in his image. So like the rest of reality, yes, we are all products of God's work, but uniquely in all of creation, we're made in God's image, which means that we're called to be a reflection of the God that we worship, a representation of this working God in this world. So when we act, we're to be a mirror, we're to point to the God that created us. And that's what representatives do, right? When we see Seth and Enoch and we see them do things that remind us of uh, Tony and Tricia, we point it back to them. It thinks of us, we think more of them, right? 
Um, and in a weird way, I was reminded about this truth this week because of tacos. All right, tacos. Um, so, strange story, but my favorite meal growing up has always been jack-in-the-box tacos. Ever since I was young, like fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, middle school, I loved jack-in-the-box tacos. Right? There was just something in the meat that made me like love beef. Right? It was great. Um, and so, growing up, like that was my like my thing. Saturday, my parents would give me like five dollars, lets me go out buy tacos, and um, that would be my way of enjoying like my Saturday mornings. Um, so recently, like last week, I met up with uh, Tony and Paul, and it was my turn to bring the food, and so I brought a bunch of jack-in-the-box tacos. And so Tony's there eating the tacos, and he looks at me, and he goes like, dude, isn't this crazy? Like, it's crazy how this tastes so much like beef. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is beef. Tony looks at me and goes like, no, dude, this is like pretty much all like tofu. And, like, my mind was blown. Like, did you know that, like, jack-in-the-box tacos is mostly tofu? It's soy. Um, but it does a great job of representing the taste of meat. Like, up until this, like, this point in my life, I loved beef more because of those tacos, right? Um, the reason why I was reminded of this truth is because we're not God. We're not literally God, right? But we have the qualities through the image of God. Our God is a creative God. We are creative people. Our God is a God who works. We are people that work. Our God is a God who loves. We are people who can love. And so in a way, when we act out these qualities, we're showing the world and all the witnesses that we worship a God who has these traits. And so one of the ways that we do this is seen in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Let me go and read that out loud for us. This is where God says to man, right after creating man, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So in that command, at first glance, it doesn't seem as if what we're doing is any different from what animals are called to do, right? Animals are to fill the earth, we are also to fill the earth. But the second part is what gives its uniqueness, is that we're called to rule over it. So we're given work that's similar to God's work of ruling and reigning. See, God is a creating, working God that rules over creation, and we're also meant to be a creative, working people that represents this rule over creation, and we point to God through it. And so as you look at your work, as you look at the things you do, Does your work attach itself and share this story? So as God's representatives, does your work right now profess God? Do you intentionally recognize that you have a responsibility to mirror your work based on how God works? That your work should be a testimony to the God you worship? Like can people tell that you're a Christian by how you work? Like, think about your actual work right now. Can people tell you're a Christian based on your conduct? And hopefully they can. But it's largely because of the story you attach to. You're honest, sure, non-Christians can be honest too. You care for your coworkers, sure, non-Christians can do that as well. You can work hard, non-Christians can work hard as well. But the difference is how you work 
is rooted in something more profound, which is the why of what you work. Knowing the why, knowing the story that your work attaches itself into tells your soul how good your God is and shows to all witnesses, all powers and principalities that our God is good. And so church, attach your work to God's story. And you can do this by actively reflecting on praying on how your job mirrors God's work, right? In one way or another, your job somehow involves bringing beauty out of ugliness or order out of chaos. Maybe it's you feeding the hungry or maybe assembling pieces to create a product or maybe treating illnesses, um, treating injustice, grouping knowledge, um, repairing broken windows, but in either case, take some time to praise God knowing that the work you're doing shows how good he is. That when you're being creative, it's because your God is creative and praise him for that. Think of him more for that, right? You can also recognize your, your work is a form of worship. And when you don't compromise your holiness by not cheating or demeaning others or wasting right time, you're saying something about your God. Another way you can connect your work to God's story is by not idolizing your work. You're more than just your job. You're more than just a banker or a doctor or a teacher or a student. These are all just secondary callings. You're also, on top of that, a brother or a sister, a missionary or a gamer or a pianist or etc. Right? These are all secondary to serve the primary calling of glorifying God. You're a child of God made in the image of God. And so when work starts to come at the expense of your worship and time with Christ, you can recognize that your work is supposed to point to God's story, not God's story to point to your work. Right, so that's number one. Point number one, work is God's story. Point number two, work is for human flourishing for the purpose of God's glory. Let me say that again. Work is for human flourishing for the purpose of God's glory. Let me go ahead and read that one, uh, read chapter two, verses one through four, one more time. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So in chapter two, we're seeing God going back to the act of work, but this isn't the work of creation anymore, but this is the work of ruling and ordering what he has already made. So God is planting this garden, the garden of Eden, basically a paradise, which leads you to the question, if you have a perfect world before the fall, how do you create a paradise? By creating a space for human flourishing. Right? The Garden of Eden is perfect for Adam and Eve to flourish. There's endless things to eat. God is dwelling with them. Right? Men and women are the most happiest when they're with Christ, at their peak when they're with Christ. So this is paradise in a perfect world. And God places man and woman in the Garden of Eden to work it, take care of it. Right? Their job is here to work and take care. And not only this, God models rest. Right? God is resting from his work on the seventh day. He doesn't need to rest just like how he doesn't need to work, but he does this to show that there's a rhythm to this, right? We're meant to work and we're meant to rest. And this image that God models for Adam and Eve is how God perfectly designed the idea of work to flourish. 
and the workplace and conditions where Adam and Eve gets to exercise this perfect idea of work is something that we've never experienced, where they have perfect work and perfect rest. Like, just think about the Garden of Eden for a second. It's a home where they can live out their marriage and raise a family. It's a church or it's a temple where they can meet with their God, commune and worship him. It's the workplace where they engage in the productive labor that God has gave them. You and I never experienced what they had, a world in which the divisions and conflicts of interest between church, work, and family didn't exist. And in this amazing paradise, their work was to take care of this garden, home, church, workplace. And they did this, right, because they were made in the image of God, and every time they did engage in this, they gave glory to their creator. And their job as God's representatives, right, was to take what God has begun, carry it on, show off his glory. And so the original purpose of human work was for the advancement of human flourishing for the glory of God. And obviously for us today, getting at this idea of perfect work is much harder than it was for Adam and Eve because of the fall, because of sin, right? If sin isn't a word that you've ever experienced or come across, basically sin is everything that is currently wrong with the world, the desire for malice, um, disobedience, pain, all our ripple effects or our sin. And sin came about because Adam and Eve failed to protect and keep the garden. Because Adam and Eve rebelled by when they saw the serpent, not expelling it, but actually talking with it, allowing the serpent to tempt them and choosing to disobey the God in which created the space. And so they allowed sin to twist and distort this original idea of work, And when they brought sin into the world, they were expelled from this perfect workplace. And this is devastating, right, for a number of reasons. This is devastating for Adam and Eve, because some of us know what it's like to get fired. Some of us know what it's like to get a bad grade. But this is completely worse for Adam and Eve, right, because they not only got kicked out of their garden, the perfect workplace, but they weren't relieved of their responsibility. Like, imagine if your boss told you you're fired, but you have to keep working and your job's harder. Like, it's obviously a lot worse, right? Um, And so for us today, it's easy for us to understand the first part of the original purpose of work. Work is for human advancements. But because of the fall, it's much harder for us to understand the second half, that it's for the glory of God. Um, Because all human institutions or most companies are gonna agree with that first half, right? They're gonna say yes and amen to the fact that work is for human flourishing. But they're going to disagree with the second half that's for the glory of God. But the problem is that when we take a godly thing and forget its godly purpose, then it doesn't work. Let me give an example. Um, Again, history teacher, history examples. And the first thing I thought about here was a king named King Menlik II. The King Menlik II was an emperor of Ethiopia, and he had a great reverence for the Bible, right? So we see the godly thing. He had great reverence for the Bible, but he didn't know the godly purpose, that it's for salvation. Instead, he kind of came up with his own godly purpose. He thought that whenever he was sick, he could rip out pages from the Bible and eat them, and it'll help him get better. And so in 1913, in December, what happened was that um, he was particularly sick one day. He tells his aide to give him 
First um, King and Second Kings to eat. And before he got through both books, he ended up passing away. Right? So similarly, if we try to take the work of human flourishing and unhinge it from the purpose of glorifying God, then it doesn't work. Right? It's silly and misguided. And so our idea of work today is constantly removed from its godly purpose, which is to glorify God. And it's done that through three ways we see through the fall. Right? Genesis chapter 3, 17 to 19 um, lays out the curses of work. And um, I want to go over these three really quickly. Number one, we see that work is going to become toilsome. Right? After Adam and Eve is expelled, work becomes toilsome. It reads, through painful toil, you will eat all the days of your life. Work is going to be tiring. And I'm sure we can all resonate with this. I remember my first year being a teacher. I thought being a teacher was the most tiring thing in the world. I would teach until 2 or 3, and because I'm just so exhausted, I would go home and knock out. I'll wake up at 8 p.m. and remind myself, hey, I need a lesson plan for tomorrow. I have nothing to teach. I would lesson plan until 11 and realize I have to wake up at 6, so I would go to sleep. That would be my Mondays through Fridays. And I remember, like, sometime in spring, I had a student, like, pick up a chair and throw it against the window and run out. I was just so fed up. I went to my laptop and looked up, what else can you do with an English degree besides teaching? Right? Um, working is hard. Second, it's going to be futile. So even though Adam and Eve will painfully toil in the ground his whole life, the cursed ground under his feet will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Right? So number two, it's futile. Meaning no matter how often you work, there will be more work for you to do. The laundry list for you to do will never end. Um, There always will be more tasks, more things to do, more ways to advance. The work never ends. And lastly, right, because of these two things, we might feel tempted to give up on work entirely. You grow cynical, opt out, give up, do something else, stop working. But that's not an option because of the third curse that comes because of the fall. Um, What was originally a free act of worship is now a forced act for survival, right? Verse 19 reads, By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. So if you don't work, you're not going to eat. And if you don't eat, you're not going to survive. So you have to go through the toil and the futility. And so because of sin, we rebel and forget the story that started work in the first place. We start to think that work was made just for human flourishing and that, we were, um, that what was meant to be worship to God is suddenly going to become worship for work or for ourselves. We start to worship human flourishing. And um, it doesn't take long after the fall for us to see this play out, right? One of the first pictures of work that we see outside the Garden of Eden are the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth, children of Adam and Eve. We see that the children of Adam and Eve, the descendants of Cain, are those who worship human flourishing and rebel against God. And what we see from them is that, yes, work does build culture, right? Cain's descendants develop agriculture, music, all sorts of metals, and all that is really good. But what the narrative also tells us is that the descendants of Cain become defined by their work. Their identity in the text literally comes from their jobs. But that the descendants of Seth, the godly line, aren't associated with work at all. Instead, they're defined as those who began to call on the name of the Lord. 
The point isn't that worshipers of God don't work, but that rather they aren't defined by their work. And so church, how do we attach ourselves to God's story of work? How do we remind our soul that work is not for just human flourishing, but for the glory of God? We recognize that we're not defined by our work, but that work is meant to glorify God, right? In Jesus Christ, we see that Jesus worked. He was a carpenter, but his true work was to be a redeemer. And by his death and resurrection, he gives those who repent and have faith in him salvation. He changes their hearts and gives them new motivations. But work is still going to be hard. There's going to be toil and futility and pain. And the gospel doesn't change the conditions of your work, but it does change the conditions of your heart. It gives you a new heart. And because we're able to repent and love him, redeemed people are once again able to worship God freely through their work. Right? Paul writes in Colossians 3.17, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it on the name of Lord Jesus giving thanks to the God, the Father, through him. So people are redeemed, work is not. But because we are redeemed, work is no longer about our name, about our glory. It's about his name and his glory. Because we are redeemed, our work, with all of its toilsome pain and futility, can once again be offered freely as worship because that work itself is God's work product. Our work is important because it shows off God's beauty in us, God's work in us. And so this Monday, this coming week, as you guys go off to your workplaces, if your coworkers had a window into your heart, hopefully they could see the differences that Christ makes because of how he's changed your motivations, why you work, your motives, desires, and ambitions are all shaped by the story that you're attached to, this good God who's willing to create, not because it's a curse, but because it is good. And so church, tomorrow, let's go to work recognizing that it's a part of God's story. Yes, for um, human flourishing, but for the glory of God. Let's pray.